Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Do not underestimate the power of the independent open cloud for developers. Yes, I'm talking about Linode. Linode is our cloud of choice and it's the home of changelog.com. What we love most about Linode is their independence and their commitment to open cloud. Open cloud means being unencumbered by outside investment and maximizing value for the community, not shareholders. And that's exactly what Linode represents. No vendor lock-in, open at every layer. If you want to learn more, head to linode.com slash open. Again, linode.com slash open. Welcome to Go Time, your weekly podcast discussing everything inside Go's expanding reach. We've got clouds, containers, system architecture, CLIs, you name it, and of course, the people and language that make it all go. We record live on Tuesdays. It's a lot of fun. Join us in the Go Time FM channel of Go for Slack at 3 p.m. Eastern. We also take requests at slash request. Select Go Time in the drop down and let us know what you'd like to hear about on the show. Okay, here's Matt and the team. Go Time, baby. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about abstractions and interfaces. And we're obviously going to deep dive on Go interfaces and look at some patterns and things there. Joining me today, it's Mark Bates. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. And yourself? Uh, not bad. It says here in my show notes that I'm supposed to mention BitBar and compliment you accordingly. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Mark. So this is my mention of BitBar? Yeah, yeah. Thank you <laughs> very I'm much. Complimenting you accordingly. Now, you've surprised me there, yeah. But um, <laughs> I'll talk more about that later because... Oh, is, is that not the sponsorship of... portion of the show? Is that not where I... No, but that's that we did that. <laughs> oh, done sorry, that. No. sorry. That's Fastly. <laughs> 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 We're also joined by Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Matthew. Wait, your full name, first name is Matthew? Yeah. I haven't knew that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Really? Mm, yeah, oh. Matt's just a shorter version of it, but it's just one T. Whoa, whoa, so Matt is short for Matthew? Yeah. I've just been... <laughs> huh. Oh, Mind interesting. blown. Mine, yeah. totally, but I did not see that coming. And yeah. John is short for Jonathan, and speaking of which, Jonathan, <laughs> it's John Calhoun. <laughs> Hello, John. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Good. Good. We're going to talk about interfaces and abstractions today. And I thought, since you've done a lot of kind of training material and stuff, it might be cool if you could kick us off and uh, just start with sort of tell us what is an interface and what are they for? Yeah. I mean, at its very core, they're just a way of defining behavior that you want. So, you know, when we talk about code, a lot of times you look at structs and you'll see very concrete things that say like what a user is or all these different things. But whenever you're actually writing code, a lot of times you don't care specifically about the type that you're getting. You don't care if it's a user or if it's uh, you know, admin or if it's something else. You just care about some specific behavior that it might have. And in Go, this is typically represented with methods of some sort. Yeah, so an interface is a type that just lists out methods. And then any other type that happens to have those same methods can be used wherever that interface is requested. Is that? Yep. Yeah. 
The example I always use uh, when I'm doing training is like an entertainer interface. So if I'm starting a club, some sort of an entertainment venue, right? If I use a concrete type, if I say, you know, I want to use this concrete type, the concrete type is Beatle. Anybody who's a Beatle can play at my club. Well, there's only two people in the whole world who can play. Admittedly, if I got one of those two, I could easily pack the house. <laughs> the other one would be tending bar. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, that's concrete behavior. Only I can only fill it two nights of the year, possibly. Right. Right. If I accept an interface, if I say anybody who's an entertainer, anybody who can play something, whether it be a guitar or a flute or can read poetry or an improv troupe, they can all entertain. They all have this play method on them, just like a Beatle would. Um, now I can have Paul McCartney come play. I can have the flutist come play. I can have that dance group come and perform because um, they all implement that. They're not concrete anymore. To me, that's always a clear analogy, but yeah, maybe not. <laughs> See, I like that because it's a good way of sort of showing that you can also do interfaces that are like a long-running process, like anything that can play, and that might block for a half hour. Mm. You know, everybody sits down and listens to an entertainer play. Or you can have behaviors like, if you're dealing with like packages and you're like the post office, all you really care about is like, give me the dimensions. You don't typically care what's specifically in the box. Like you might have something like, is this hazardous? You know, a couple things like that. But once you've checked those things off and those are sort of more behaviors that just give you some quick data back and they don't necessarily block, but interfaces can cover everything on that broad spectrum of, you know, start a server that can start up any type of server, or it could be, you know, just give me some information. Yeah, and I love in Go that you don't have to explicitly say that you're implementing an interface. So in a lot of languages, when you create your type, you actually list out all the interfaces that you're going to implement. And then the IDE usually helps you enforce that and make sure that you put all the right methods in so that you satisfy the list. It doesn't work like that in Go. In Go, it's called structural typing. So it's kind of like duck typing, but because it happens at compile time, it's called structural typing, apparently. But the duck typing idea is, if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it's a duck. And it's kind of like saying, yeah, so here's the interface with a few methods, and even if you didn't know about this interface, you can still implement it. Or you can write interfaces to things that already exist, or that other people have written. So that turns out to be really quite powerful as well. Yeah, the, the implicit over explicit is really where... It shines in terms of the interfaces. And I know a lot of new people coming to Go, I've seen from class, really struggle with that bit. <laughs> Understanding that just because they've written a method, they are now implicitly implementing an interface. And they get hung up on, well, how do I know that I'm implementing that interface? And I'm like, well, it's not important until you need to use it as an interface. Like, that's mm. the beauty of it. You say, well, how do I know? You just look at the docs. What is this thing taking? It's taking a writer. What's a writer? A writer is anything that implements the write function, takes a slice of bytes, returns it into an error, right? That's the beauty of it. You just kind of do it. You don't have to worry about tying into all these other things. It also means, and we can definitely talk on this later, that you can break a lot of dependencies too. Just You can keep dependencies out of the mix by using interfaces in ways too as well, which is quite nice. So yeah, along those lines, my favorite use of interfaces is to leverage its ability to provide that sort of a independent means of sort of decoupling packages, dependency between packages, right? So for example, 
I do a lot of work with the AWS SDKs. And for example, when writing a lot of data to say DynamoDB, I don't necessarily have to bring in the uh, AWS SDK, uh, the DynamoDB interface or implementation anywhere near my code. I can simply create an interface that I expect my code to use and basically have that interface be local to my code, not even export it to the rest of the application at all. Have that be local to, to my code. And uh, maybe in my main package, when I'm initializing my application, I can then basically you know initialize a, a value that represents a client to my DynamoDB uh, server and then pass that in. And as long as it satisfies the interface I've defined for, for my code locally, everything is good, right? My code didn't have to know anything about the fact that it's even a DynamoDB implementation at all, right? It can be anything that actually implements that interface. So that allows you to create that separation, that, that decoupling, you know, because of that implicit satisfaction of those methods, then it, it really allows you to keep your code separate and not have depend on any sort of externalities at all. That's my favorite part of, of using interfaces. I'm glad you brought that up because like Mark was saying, a lot of people get hung up on this fact that how do I know if I'm implementing an interface? And I, I think that that's, it's a weird paradigm to get used to is like you kind of lift that responsibility off your shoulders and it's the person who's using the type that actually has to care about is this going to be implementing an interface and then they define the interface. Like you were saying, Johnny, your code that you know needs something that interacts with a database of some sort, it defines the interface and it doesn't even necessarily have to export it to the rest of the code. And it's weird to get used to that when you come from another language like Java or something where you're explicitly saying like here are all the interfaces I'm implementing and that's very different from the way it is in Go. In Go, you just write your code, and then if somebody wants it to be an interface, it's their job to define the interface and you know, sort of make sure that it's the right one. Yeah, a lot of, especially, again, new developers don't realize is that you can create non-exported interfaces inside of a function or a method. And to use, to check right there. Like, you don't have to export them. You don't have to have tons of interfaces. Right. You can say, I'm looking for one very specific thing, create an interface in line right there. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. It's so wonderful that you can do stuff like that. You know, because you can even then turn around and create your own, like, default implementation of that interface <laughs> using functions and types, right? You know, to have a backup in case the thing you're looking for doesn't exist or is nil or whatever. It's... Such a wonderful way of working and asking for and getting more and more enhanced functionality. Like along those lines, I've seen way too many times where as I'm writing my code, if I happen to, I used to create public interfaces all the time. And then I realized, okay, first of all, I don't need to. And, and the reason, and, and I came to a point where I'm like, oh, every time I create a public interface, right, I'm kind of implicitly saying to whoever is going to use this, this package, this code that, hey, you can actually depend on this because I've exported it. Right, you can you can right. depend thereby making it hard for me to to actually change that later on if I wanted to, right? So, like every other type, if you don't need to export uh, something, don't, right? So by keeping it local and private to 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 the package, I'm basically saying, hey, I'm just gonna in my readme, I'm saying, hey, this is what you should expect to send in, or you can actually read the code implementation and then see what is expected, what uh, interface you expected to satisfy. And then that enforces that separation, right? So it removes the temptation when I don't export it. It removes the temptation to actually sort of uh, have that my interface be in your code. Yeah, so that's interesting you bring that up, Johnny, because Eric Fuga on the Slack channel in GoTimeFM uh, was actually talking just about that thing. And he says that he likes the idea of providing the interface with the implementation because you get this sort of explicit storytelling, I guess. And he's apparently challenged this before and people have said, you don't need to do it or 
it's unnecessary or something, but he asks for a more concrete reason why why is it bad to ship the interface and a struct, say, if you've got a package? What are the pros and cons? I don't think it's wrong, and I don't think that's what Johnny was saying. I think what he was saying, like most code, is start with the least amount exported and export what you need as you go. And I can tell you from very much so firsthand experience, and I'm feeling a lot of pain around a lot of this, is exposing too much of your API too early and exporting too much of it does cause problems. It causes a lot of problems down the line in terms of migrating things, just dependencies, things get stuck, and it becomes difficult to work with. If you start by exposing nothing and then expose the things you need as you go, that's really very, very useful. And so, uh, yes, there are very much so reasons you should expose interfaces. I don't think anybody would ever say don't. Standard libraries littered with them. They are very useful. I think what Johnny's saying and what most people are advocating are don't expose the ones that people don't need to know about, the ones that are just useful for you inside of your package. Only expose the ones that people need to fulfill to work with your package. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the question, but that's kind of the way I was kind of viewing it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I have a special place in my heart as well for single method interfaces for a kind of similar reason, like about the whole sort of minimalist mindset of keeping everything as tiny as possible. And doing that even down to the interface level, there's some surprising things that can happen which only work with single method interfaces. One example is just being able to use like a function type, like the handler func is the great example of that. If anyone that hasn't seen that code, go and look look up the handler func and handler types in the HTTP package. It's not very much code, but it's very cool how there's a function type which happens to match the signature of the serve HTTP method in the handler interface. And it to implements the serve HTTP method and then just calls itself. So it's this kind of weird inception. It's the weirdest little thing that I think you encounter in Go often. It is. It's a beautiful little code. Uh, you know, I know that if you ask, you know, it was very much so a fallout. That wasn't an intended thing. That was just a fallout from the way the type system is designed. Mm-hmm. You know, for those of you who don't know, and, and Go, you can you declare your own types. Like we type, you know, we do type foo struct, and that's declaring a new type based off of struct or based off of interface. We can do it off of ints. We can do it off of slices. We can create new types off of anything, including functions. And when you do that, then you can put methods on that new type. <laughs> and that method can implement, in this case, HTTP handler, and then just call itself. I use it all the time. It's a wonderful little thing, especially for those single method interface. And even double, you know, depending on what the other methods are, you can easily mock those out too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> that was some that was deep well, in, insight into what I, I was, just said there. I appreciate that. I was really... contemplating challenging it, but um, I was just going to let it go. But actually, <laughs> it only works with a single method interface. The... Uh, that, you know, that trick of d- doing the function thing. Um, because, you know, there's only one function it can call. All right. Unless it's like a like a close. Sometimes you get like no op close, and then you can you can implement those actually, and it just doesn't do anything. Yeah, but on the testing side, it's incredibly useful. That's yeah, where so I, that's where I use it all the time is to implement testing versions of these interfaces. Yeah, so that's another use. If you do have some kind of concrete dependency, like you're going to send an email and you're using a package from SendGrid, 
let's say that they didn't export an interface, so you only have a struct to work with. If you want to stub that out and test the code that you're writing, make sure it calls that, uses that SendGrid API in the way you expect, if that's indeed the kind of test you want to do, then that can be quite tricky if you forget that you can write the interface after. You can write an interface that just essentially describes the same methods that you're going to call in the original SendGrid API. You use that type instead in your real code, and then you've got an opportunity to build your own stub version of that that you can use for testing. So that te if it, some, sometimes you can't avoid the situation of having to test those types of dependencies if you want to unit test something. And for those cases, it's, that's incredibly useful. So it's really worth remembering that you can write your own interface about something else. It doesn't always have to be the other way around. Another one that's come up with some of that weird stuff is uh, any type that chains, like does method chaining, can be really hard to use an interface for. So you almost have to wrap the whole thing in something else that returns interfaces and sort of define your own interface there. And it can get frustrating, I guess, at times, mm. but it's just kind of the way it is, so... Yeah, method chaining is a real drag in that respect. Yeah, yeah. it's not very Go, actually, I think. No, it's these not. Fluent, <laughs> what we're talking about is these fluent APIs where every method call returns this, the object itself right. so that you can add... Or a clone or a modified or a new version of it. Yeah, right, right. right. Whatever. The same type, yes. Yeah, yeah depending yeah. on what, what it's doing, yeah. And I get it, and in some languages they really work well, but they do... In Go, Go is very strict about types. And in this situation, it's very difficult for you to not replace wholesale some of these concepts with all, you know, regardless. It's funny. So I, I ran into, I think, the very first time I've ever really wanted generics in Go the other day. Mm. It was all about interfaces. And the problem I had was I have two identical interfaces. And, and all they had was one method on them that returns a string. That's it. Just plain method. Just called name returns a string. Both the same. Both this like they're both called plugin. They both have a method called name. They both return a string. They're identical, just in different packages. Mm -hmm. But because they're in different packages, they are now different types, and you cannot use one as the other in say a return, even mm -hmm. though they implement the exact same interface. Yeah. They're not the same type, so therefore they don't work. So it was, that was like the first time where it's like, well, the compiler could tell that. <laughs> that information yeah. is there. They are identical, so they, they do implement each other. They are interchangeable interfaces, mm -hmm. um, so therefore their types really shouldn't matter. Yeah. And that's a case where I think generics would have solved that problem. Yeah, so this was Russ Cox when they did the uh, the alias. Do you remember that type alias? Oh yes, yes thing? Mm -hmm. this was to it, kind of solve. It's still there, you know. It's here. It's in our code. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've used it well. before. It's yeah. just I feel like you're using something you're not supposed to be using when you use that alias. Yeah, like yeah. That's, that's the hard part with it. Is like yeah. I've used it occasionally to, to experiment with some stuff, yeah, and yeah. it just feels like I'm doing something naughty that I'm not yeah, supposed to yeah. be doing. And I'm like, yeah. eh, I probably don't <laughs> want to advertise this code now. Yeah, it doesn't quite do feel right when I use it too. I'm with you. But it was a is a fix, I think, and yeah, it didn't quite do its thing. Now, what's interesting, we're hearing uh, breaking news from the Slack channel. Marwan is actually saying that in one fourteen there could be some changes. 
Oh no, I think the changes. Okay, I'm reading it live as I speak for some reason. Uh, like a, it's like proper live journalism. This isn't it? No, it's just me <laughs> reading out of Slack. <laughs> I'm distracted by Slack even now. The overlapping, overlapping interfaces. Yeah. That's the overlapping in one struct. I don't think that's the same. Yeah, because you can just do that with structs, can't you? If you've got two structs that have exactly the same fields, you can just cast one to the other, and it's a very cheap operation. Is that right? I think that's right. Mm. No, you can cast the type that's based on the other type. Uh, What do you mean based on? I'm pretty sure what Matt's saying is right. It's just, it's one of those things that every time you happen to do it, you're like, let me go ahead and write this real quick and make sure it works. (laughs) Yeah, make sure this works. Well, it's like, if you have a type that's, you know, type my int based on int, you can cast it back and forth between my int and int. So I guess you could could do that with a struct too, yeah. You can if you can do that with exactly with structs if the same fields and the same structure essentially yeah. you can do the same yeah. just the name of it and then brackets and then pass the other type in. Yeah, that's not at all weird Go code. Exactly, and <laughs> the, the fact that I mean it just feels like so brittle. But I guess Ooh. if one of the structures changes, you get then a compile error. It's a compiler time error because right. the types are no longer compatible. So maybe it's quite reliable, really. Um, but it is surprising to see, I, because it looks like you're calling a method, actually. It looks like you're calling a method, and that is quite yeah. strange. The 114 feature that's, that's coming with regards to the overlapping um, interfaces is that you can now, if you actually have two interfaces that have the same method, before mm-hmm. 114, you couldn't do that. Now, as long as they match, obviously, then you can do that, right? And obviously, your implementation can only have one Say you have an open method or something or whatever, you know, your implementation can only have one anyway. So it makes the fact that you have two, the fact that the embedder and the embedded have the same thing kind of makes it moot. So now you're allowed to do that. The compiler won't yell at you. So ah, that's, that's the new thing. I didn't know you weren't allowed to do that before, actually. Funnily enough. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I never tried to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... Yeah, certainly. I haven't. I didn't know you couldn't do that. I thought they'd be all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, well, now it is. Doesn't solve the problem I had, but yeah, it is. It is useful that that fixes there. This episode is brought to you by Brave. We deserve a better internet. That's why the team behind Brave reimagined what a browser could be. Brave is like Chrome, the good parts. Even your extensions will just work. It has built-in ad and tracker blocking, easy anonymization with the Tor network, earn tokens while you browse and use them to tip your favorite creators. And did I mention it's lightning fast? Turns out the web is super fast when you remove all the cruft. Download Brave today using the link in the show notes and give tipping a try on changelog.com. I know this is like really delayed, but earlier we were talking about single method interfaces. I think the one thing that I want to point out is that one of the aspects of them that I really, really like is just that it makes writing closures and turning them into an interface much, much easier. Yeah. Because otherwise, like using a closure for an interface would be a, like a nightmare. Yeah. So I do this a lot with a handler funk again, actually. So our, my handlers, which usually are methods on some server type, they, when called, return a function. So they return a handler func, essentially. And in that case, the compiler will it'll cast the type for you if it matches, actually, for that function case. And so essentially you get that little closure environment that you were talking about, John, where you can do some setup, you can you know, prepare some resources if it's a, a web request, which it is in this case. And then in the body of the function you return, that's the hand, that's the real handler that gets called every time. So it's a tiny bit of indirection, but what you get from that is you can have per handler dependencies just passed in as arguments. 
you can have the little setup code all in one place near to you know where your actual handle is being done the work of it and similarly you can have like request and response types also in that space as well and it keeps them all in one place out of the way and so for some projects i think that's quite a nice little neat package a nice little neat way of designing out these services this is a good time for a commercial break please <laughs> purchase <laughs> this dead air brought to you by Bedbar. <laughs> bit uh, for oh, all your stroking of matt's ego we're needs. gonna like find out after this that it's like bitbar's not been working with the latest update or something <laughs> uh yeah well no it works it doesn't really need many updates frankly it's the kind of like done for anyone that doesn't know it's the little project which puts the script the output of any script or program into your map menu bar and the contents of your password manager into Matt's email. <laughs> no, I, I did, but it still comes through as little black dots. So I still oh. can't read it. It was a mistake on my part. Open developer um, tools. Yeah. Uh, but so actually, it's a nice example, really, if we're talking about abstractions, <laughs> because the key point is like this, the little tool doesn't really do anything. It just calls another program. And then the output of that program is what basically builds the menu bar and the menu that you get when you click it. So it, it's a kind of perfect example of an abstraction that really worked because there's hundreds now of plugins for this and they all do all, uh, kind of wildly different things. None of them that I could have imagined when I just made Bitbar for the one case that I had it for. So it's nice. It's that that's the the side of interfaces that enables other people. So if you do provide an interface or a, a very simple way uh, for people to integrate and extend what you're doing, if that's easy, then more people are going to do it. And you know the point of having that there surely is for people to use it. Is what you know it's enabling other people to also build on top of what you're doing. So that's a great. Even for its own sake, it's great, but obviously in business, there's massive value as we've seen as well. So we've talked about all the the benefits of using interfaces. Can you can you think of reasons when you should not use an interface? That's a really good one. I've definitely in the past overdone it. I've definitely done cases where I've overused interfaces when a simple struct it, it turns out to be much simpler. I tend not to do that anymore because I tend to start with the structs first and then I let the interfaces kind of find themselves or reveal mm. themselves over time. So you don't you don't design your code. You don't you don't tr you don't try to abstract too early by saying, "Oh yeah, this thing's going to receive an interface." So so Matt, you can you go on record right now as saying you don't design your code? Well, <laughs> of come course, on, Johnny yeah. just asked you a question. Do you or do you not, sir, design your code? I feel like it designs me. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Um, no, well, yes, I mean, obviously you do. And, and, and interfaces are a great way to do that as well, especially if you're collaborating with people. Like you could say, well, you know, we know that we have to, our two things have to communicate. So let's agree on the interface between them and we can both build towards that. So that in those contexts, it's, it's great. But yeah, of course, like it is useful if you're just sketching out concepts, actually. Sometimes in my notebook, I'll actually write out Go interfaces to try and think about what these things are going to be doing and stuff. But yeah, I do tend to wait. You know, if I'm doing a package, I want that to be like the smallest possible footprint. So I am definitely in that camp of I wouldn't have an interface unless it was ex an extremely important part of this package. 
like the reader, IO reader, IO writer, those kinds of types? I think like sort of building on what Matt said, one of the downsides to jumping straight to an interface is that it it causes you to think, oh, I'm going to have like three implementations of this and starting to like focus on breaking things into like multiple versions when sometimes that's just never the case. The classic example is typically like your database. You're like, well, what if we switch out for another database? But in reality, most people never do that. (laughs) So, you know, it's one of those like, it's not that you can't do some of that stuff to sort of make it easier for you, but it doesn't make sense to bend over backwards to make this possible later when in reality, you're probably not going to do it. Yes. And often whenever you think like that, the, the, the detail actually doesn't allow it anyway. Like two different data stores often behave very differently. You wouldn't treat them the same. So it's more likely to encourage bigger changes anyway, isn't it? So I completely agree. Uh, Yeah, I've found every interface, like when I design interfaces up front, they're almost never correct. You know, it's just because you're guessing. You're taking a wild stab Hmm. at what you think the interface, you know, is. And especially if you go ahead and publish that. Now, you know, like I've been doing a lot of work with interfaces and whatever, but, you know, and recently. And I can tell you that, you know, a lot of what I've been doing now is working with stuff with problems that I do understand and problems that I do know what these interfaces need to look like now and how people are using them. But even then, I'm still saying, well, what's the simplest I can get away with and see how I far I can push that before it starts breaking, right? And before I need a second fit month method or a concrete type or something further down the line. But Yeah, yeah so in Buffalo, um, in the Buffalo project, you, you're quite flexible. It's kind of like a framework and it's flexible. It lets people plug different things in and out, doesn't it? Wait a minute. I feel like you jumped about 10 steps. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, I mean, like, generally, though, Buffalo, well, the reason why interfaces are important and these kinds of concepts, abstractions are important, they're especially important in the Buffalo project because of the nature of it, the fact that you can use different technologies. And Well, yeah, the reason I jumped ahead was um, I think Buffalo actually does a terrible job today of doing that. <laughs> How does it work today? Well, today we have a lot of hard concrete types all over the place, lots of dependencies. You know, we've got a plugin system that goes and searches your path for executable binaries named a certain thing and asks them for information. It's very slow. It just, and generally, as a whole, the Buffalo Project was very much so like a lot of projects, right? I, I started it when I first came to, to go and... You know, I started writing Ruby for Go, basically. <laughs> and we, we all bring our baggage with us, right? And so a lot of this has grown over time with just, you know, me making choices that at the time seem logical or at the time were what I just knew how to do because I didn't know Go well enough to make those choices. And things kind of, you know, and then as projects grow, right, you know, things evolve and people come in and changes are made and new requirements are added on, whatever. So today, you know, what we have with Buffalo isn't as pluggable as I want it to be. And it doesn't achieve the goals I wanted to in terms of, you know, saying, I don't want to use pop. I want to use Gorm. I want to make that as seamless as possible. I don't want to use Gorm. I want to use nothing. I want to use, you know, ego templates or Raymond templates or whatever templating you want, right? Or whatever it is you want to do right now, you can't do that in Buffalo. So we 
I, we, I <laughs> definitely had to go back to the drawing board and we're currently rewriting it all now using a completely different system, but all interface driven using a, pretty much all of what we've just been talking about. I have to ask though. Yeah. If I'm going to use a framework, I wanted to make some decisions for me. I want it to be opinionated. I mean, I, personally, I think that's the reason why I use a framework and not kind of one of the reasons you use a framework, right? I'm with you. <laughs> So if you're now telling me, hey, you're going to provide this whole new pluggable system that can basically take any ORM tooling you want, mm -hmm. it can use any, any you know, um, UI interface you want, whatever, whatever, all the bits and pieces, if you make everything pluggable, then I think, do you not create another problem now? Now you have to sort of document patterns. Hey, you could use, the, you know, this set of things, this for ORM, this for, you know, template generation, this for that. It's almost like you're pushing the decision to the user of the, of the framework as opposed to being opinionated about it. Absolutely <laughs> doing that. I think a little bit cleaner than, than you might be imagining it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like Buffalo today, right now you can say, you know, generate a new app and you get this whole web stack and it's got Node and it's got Pop and it's got Plush and all that sort of stuff, right? And that's that very opinionated thing you're talking about. And there's also a flag you can generate a JSON one, which is slightly different, right? And that won't ever go away. That is just, you know, we will still have what, you know, those kind of, I don't know, template, Rails calls them like templates, but I'm not quite sure exactly. <laughs> like kind of default presets, if preset's a good word, right? Or you could say like, give me the web preset, you know, and Buffalo will ship with a few of them. And you're going to get a file, you know, you're going to get a Go file that has all those plugins in them and you could just pull them out or add your own or whatever. Or you could come up with a different preset that your company has of all these plugins um, and just use that instead. So yeah, I, there's always going to be opinions and it's just like, you know, Rails basically generates a base camp for you whenever you do Rails new, <laughs> right? I mean, Buffalo new will always generate the base camp for me, <laughs> I would assume, right? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we need to make it easier for other people. You know, not everybody wants pop. Not everybody wants these things. And, and I know myself, I have hit points where I'm like, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I can't because <laughs> I don't have the hooks in the tooling. I don't have the hooks in the the library itself, right? I mean, we talk about tooling and CLIs, and you start talking about how do you get versioning and stuff like that, but that's getting way off this track. <laughs> do you think if you had the opportunity to sit and design for much longer before you started Buffalo, that you would have come to these realizations just just by exploring it in your mind? Or do you think the, the process was important? Oh, God, no. I think everybody else would probably agree with it. You can't design stuff like this in a vacuum. If you've never written a web framework and managed a web framework and <laughs> all that goes along with something like, a, like Buffalo, for example, or if you're writing Docker or whatever tool it is you're talking about, project you were talking about, you can't just start one of those in a vacuum and say, I know how to solve this problem. The problems are always infinitely more complex than you know. <laughs> yeah. Always. It doesn't matter the domain. So. No, I could not have come up with a better design than I did when I first started writing Buffalo, when I first started writing Buffalo. What I can do is spend the last six months going on a kind of a codicence, a vision quest, if you will, for code, trying to, to figure out what that needs to be, what it needs to be to be truly idiomatic and pluggable and easy and dependable and trusted. You can only do that sort of a thing with time and you, you, experience. Yeah, absolutely. So in the way this next API has emerged 
in some ways out of what you had before. But also, of course, it's not to say you shouldn't do any design. I mean, that's what you're doing now is when you're thinking about this, you're taking everything you know before and putting right. it into then a new design. Yeah, so of course there's value in that. Yeah, I mean, we're currently rewriting the entire CLI project uh, to a V2 um, using pure Go and, and kind of interface-based plugins to really drive us. And, and we're about, I would say about 70% done and including some major pieces like generate, uh, the generate subcommand, the res generate resource, and build and test. And so far, it's holding up beautifully. And we've got very small interfaces, not a ton of them. They're all standard libraries. There's no like Buffalo types. Everything is a plugin, even the subcommands are plugins. And it's all managed with just a slice of plugins. It's ridiculously simple. In its concepts, but really powerful. You can build really amazing things with just a few interfaces if you line them up correctly <laughs> and think about what it is you're doing and you set yourself a space to work in. You know, for me, it's been understanding that everything is a plugin. And, you know, so if you take something like Buffalo Generate, that generate command is just another plugin and it implements the one interface you need to be a subcommand of Buffalo, which is a main function, it takes a context root string for where you are and the slice of arguments returns an error, right? That's it. Now it's a subcommand of Buffalo. And that generate command, that generate plugin issues, like, you know, three or four interfaces maybe that say, hey, if you implement these, you're going to get these different lifestyle hooks when you run Buffalo generate. One of them being, say, subcommand of Buffalo generate, like resource. And that's it. And so there's, you, if you're, you can write your own implementation to generate, if you speak those couple interfaces, you can write your own drop-in replacement for it, right? Or any of the other things. So it's not about a lot of interfaces, it's about targeted interfaces. It's about defining the scope of where your interfaces are. Yeah, I like that idea, uh, which I think everyone could actually use potentially. You don't have to be building a kind of buffalo for it to apply, but that idea of uh, having hooks into something. So if you do have some process that's that's kind of a closed box process but you do you may want some hooks into that uh, having different interfaces for each hook it, essentially each method gets its own interface and then the they get to just implement the methods that they care about um, you can of course check if a type implements an interface in go very easily and right. if you use the two argument format then you know you're not going to panic when they don't implement that so that's pretty safe so you could use that pattern to allow other people then to hook into your own code and a bit like how you've done it for buffalo yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the examples I like to use is um, the, the Buffalo Develop Buffalo Dev subcommand, which currently you know watches your Go files, compiles them, restarts your app every time you're you're, you're working. Which is, in you know, when you're working with a compiled language, is great. So every time you go back to your browser, it's the fresh app again, right? And same thing with Webpack. But the problem is you can't add your own build scripts, right? You can't say I want something else that's watching my files and, and running my tests. You can't have something else that maybe is starting up a Docker service, right? And, you know, there's no way of hooking into that build lifecycle, right? But you could easily add a couple plugins, and this is exactly what that the, the develop plugin for Buffalo does now, or will do um, in V2, is it's like, okay, well, we've got a before develop and after develop. So if you want to set up some stuff, you need to launch Docker or whatever, write some files, gen, you know, run migrations before everything starts up, do that. There's the teardown you can hook into. And then there's this a develop 
that you can be. You can implement that, the developer interface, and get spun off in a Go routine with everybody else, you know, to, to run your things you need to. And again, that's still, that's context, string, slice of strings, and error. And you get context gives you all that cancellation, right? You can easily test async code if you're taking a context as your first argument. So in this case, testing this plugin that runs all these things in a Go routine was super easy. I just wrote another plugin that implemented that one function, and then I just canceled the context when it ran. <laughs> that, was, that was all I needed to do. So they're easily testable, and you can hook in with so much ease that it's, they're really powerful if you start thinking about interfaces in the right way. And yeah, you can do some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, you, you reminded me of another one that's that's great, and John and I were talking about this the week as well. Um, and it's this it's that idea of being able to wrap things with interfaces. Yeah. So a bit like how the middleware things work in the HTTP, where you have a function that takes in a handler and returns a handler, and then you, what you can essentially do is create a new handler that does extra things before and after passing the execution onto the other handler. And so that thing of wrapping is actually quite useful. And one trick that you can use as well, if you've got like a long running IO copy operation and you want to cancel that with context, you can create a kind of a reader with context yourself, which essentially wraps another reader and intercepts the read method. And that's obviously the first one that gets called, checks to see if the context has been canceled by checking the uh, ERR method if that returns an error it can then the read method can return the error if not it passes it on to the inner reader that's a way that you can actually get cancelable io copy you know which is it's, it's really cool to think that just because of these basic interfaces you can add actually quite a lot of power just by uh, thinking about it in the right way yeah the uh the readers are really fun one to experiment with like i would definitely encourage anybody trying to get like wrap their head around this idea to spend some time with that because like when I was messing around with the context like Matt and I were talking about is it possible to cancel a reader and we for whatever reason we hadn't read the whole thread on the <laughs> github issue where somebody actually proposed you know just wrapping it like we said but in the in the process of looking at it I was like all right well let me go ahead and just you know throw this context in there and just check to see if it's canceled and just stop it well one of the issues you run into is if you're doing really small files to test it your one read will just read the entire file in one yeah. method call. So it's like, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> but then you can quickly be like, okay, can I write, make like another, uh, you know, another reader that limits it to reading five bytes at a time. And like, now you have an easy way of saying like, I can, you know, I can chunk this and, and make it a little bit easier to see when it cancels. And I can actually have another one that's set that after it reads maybe eight bytes, it actually cancels the context. So you can do these things to sort of like sequentially exactly see what's happening and make sure your code's doing what you think it's doing. And you get this, it ends up just, it's really weird, I guess, at first, <laughs> but it's also really cool seeing like how much control you have over these things by just chaining these interfaces together. And this all stems from a, a single method interface, which is the crazy part. You know, it's not like we went ahead and had some really complicated types. It was just a read method. The single method interfaces are really key for stuff like that. Because like we've been talking about, you know, you can just create those types right there in your test and have them do whatever you need them to do. <laughs> whatever you need them to do. And then just an interface, whether it's read five bytes and cancel, whether it's, you know, capture the arguments and whatever that came into this function mm. so that you can check them later and then cancel a context or return some error you wanted to return. You can just implement those types right there, implementations of them, 
it using simple functions or slices or whatever you need to do. And it'll never get as complicated as abstract classes and big class hierarchies used to in C-sharp because this technique really only works well with tiny little interfaces. Right. Uh, so I think we kind of, it, Go protects us a little bit there. There's another trick you reminded me of with when we talked about wrapping. If you're doing an HTTP re- response or you're writing to a file and you're, and you're copying or you're writing to that file, if you want to see what's been written out, you can actually just replace the writer with a, a, a multi writer and pass in os.standardout as one of the writers. os.standardout is a file, so it actually implements IO writer. And you pass in also the original writer, so it still carries on doing what it was doing before, but because of that multi-writer, you also see it printed out into standard out. So again, tiny little, not many keystrokes, and suddenly you can peer inside your code without having to open up a debugger and things, and they're difficult to use, especially when you're dealing with streams and things. There's a lot of really cool ones like that in the IO package. Like T-Reader is another one that it does kind of like what Matt was saying, I believe, except whenever you're reading, you can actually pass in something that will write everything that it reads to that output. So you can actually have it write to, you know, standard out everything that it's reading from a file. So you can actually see, like, what am I actually reading from this, you know, HTTP request body and what does it look like? And you don't interfere with the rest of your code. You just wrap it real quick test it and make sure you know, look at it and visually see like what am I getting and then you can remove it as soon as you're done. Yeah, that the multi-ride is awesome. <laughs> I use that one all the time just for that purpose, just for debugging what I'm expected to see if I'm generating files or whatever. It's like, why am I not seeing that? <laughs> yeah, it's important, isn't it, in yeah. some cases? And, and sometimes you don't want to interfere with what it's doing. You don't want to invoke the Heisenberg principle. You want to be able right. to observe it and for it not to change behavior. <laughs> I mean, nothing's worse than like you're trying to debug and in the process of like interfering with it, you break it yourself and you're like, well, it was never going to work after I did that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I saw a great example which involved putting a log line. The log line slowed the program down enough that the behavior changed. <laughs> yeah, and it was obviously the kind of thing you do when you de- when you're debugging something. You go and put some log statements in. Even that can interfere in some cases. Yeah, I, I used to have um, weird ones in Ruby where just the act of printing it would cause something in the, the function or the t- whatever it was I was trying to debug would get kicked off, and it would actually produce different results when you printed it versus when you like just executed it. I think. That's one that catches beginners off guard. Like if they're dealing with a linked list, they'll like iterate through it to actually print it out. And then they won't realize that their list is pointing to the end of the list, which is nothing. And then they'll be like, why is this link? Why why is it not working anymore? And I've seen so many beginners get messed up by that. It's like, no, you need to reset back to the front of your list. And like, if you don't have a pointer to that anymore, like you're, you're done. Like, you know, so printing out really screws you up. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great one. Well, in Ruby, of course, you could just do anything. There weren't any rules. So <laughs> someone probably that took the 2S method and just wrote their own and did some something crazy in there, and that's it. Well, it usually was never even anything that, like, you know, mean or intentional. It's usually that, like, the 2S was probably calling some other method that, mm. you know, that that gave you a default value and it was maybe calculating a default value or something, right? right? right. Or they maybe had some caching logic or something. Or exactly, yeah. 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 And so it was never necessarily, it wasn't, I mean, 
I'm not you sure. Never, I'm sure it wasn't. I wasn't suggesting you, ruby people <laughs> go around do, casting spells on each other or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. And I certainly have never modified the plus sign on numeric and ruby to do division uh, to my coworkers ever. <laughs> yeah, because why wouldn't you want a language that lets you change what the plus symbol does? Hey, you know what? It made debugging fun. You know, it was an adventure every time. <laughs> I don't know if I want to adventure when I'm coding. <laughs> I mean, when I was you young, didn't, I did. you didn't like grepping for source code that didn't exist. <laughs> that wasn't a fun time for you, Johnny. No, I don't. Mi- I don't miss method missing. <laughs> you could implement every interface that yeah, way. Yeah, but you couldn't find it, so it's hard to find. It's hard to say it was missing. Right. Method missing itself isn't defined anywhere. Right. <laughs> uh, so joys. I do miss Ruby sometimes. It was fun to do. You could do some really fun stuff with things like method missing, but you could, of course, you do it. Do some very appropriate use as well. I did oh, see absolutely. some great examples. I mean, <laughs> really. No, but honestly, uh, you look at Rails, and I mean, Rails was the, one of the things that made Rails Rails was method missing, and, and like. Yeah. A lot of Rails is based entirely <laughs> off of method missing. All that magic that everybody loves in Rails mm-hmm. is essentially mm-hmm. using method missing. Sometimes well and sometimes, you know, not yeah, so. Yeah, so for anyone not familiar, basically, <laughs> if you call a method on an object, and if you do that in Go, if you call a method and it's not there, that's a compile time error. In Ruby, it would just let you do that, but then it would just call like a catch-all inside called method missing. And so you could then yeah. say, then it gave you a kind of second chance of seeing if you could do something with it. And yeah, a lot of the Rails things, you could write things like find by name and age... And then that becomes a new method that you just invented. Yeah, you basically would then, you parse out, you could yeah. parse the, the, the name of the method and generate, what, in that case it was generating queries for SQL. Yeah. Um, and you could also, <laughs> in Ruby, you could also, if a type didn't exist, a module or a type, you could also mm. capture that uh, and mm. define types on the fly. So I, I had a library that did uh, distributed Ruby and it would actually, if you just ask for any type inside of a module, it would just create the module, it would create the type and connect it to a remote data source somewhere um, for the DRB stuff. And, and it just did all that by capturing those error hooks where things don't <laughs> exist in Groovy. That's, I know, isn't it oh, terrible? Oh my God. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening.
so getting back to Go. Yes, please. I feel like we've talked about interfaces a bit. How have we not talked about errors? Mm. Like, I feel like that's something we should talk about. It's probably error is probably the most important interface we have in Go, actually. The best part of Go, you'd say, Matt? Matthew? The best interface in Go. I thought okay. BitBar is the best thing. BitBar <laughs> <laughs> is good. There's, there's no bones. No one's ever said it's not. Uh, uh, yes, Mark, you have said it's not. You should, yeah, but you shouldn't phone me at 3 a.m. to tell me. Just well, leave a, when leave a should I phone you to tell like you? Everyone else. <laughs> your answer phone's, hours, please. Your answer phone's full by midnight. I have no choice. <laughs> yes. Well, John. <laughs> I mean, so, so I guess it depends on what we want to talk about. So the first, the obvious thing is, it, for anybody who's unaware, um, errors in Go are just an interface. It's an interface that uh, just has the single error method and it returns a string. And... It's it's weird how powerful that ends up becoming because it allows you to return nil. It allows you to just return any specific error type you want. You know, and I, I find that really useful because you'll see all this code where people get to return specific errors, and you can actually check them and see what they're doing. It's probably led to some bad patterns too, but <laughs> but it does let you you know do a lot more with the code than you otherwise could have. So I guess I'd like to explore that more, but I don't really know where to start. Any suggestions? <laughs> I mean, there's a couple things I'd like to look at. Like the first one is for you guys, if you're writing code, do you return specific error types or do you just return an error that has a method and just tell them like, look for this method with an interface? My first pass is with the simple error types. Yeah. Um, I and then, and then if, if the program gets complicated enough where I care, where basically the, the call site needs to do different things, depending on the kind of error it is, then I'll start using uh, typed errors. I'm assuming, John, you, just, just real quick, just to clarify, you're, you're not advocating that we don't return the error interface. You're just no, asking no, I'm, whether I'm we use like, simple, like, thump.errorf or errors.new or custom errors. Like, to give you examples, like, IO has, like, specific errors, like, end of file and different Sentinel things like errors, that. Sentinel errors, yeah. So, so there are some like that, but then you, by using that, you then make anybody who's using your package have a dependency on your package, which a lot of times when you're using interfaces, your goal is to get rid of that you know, dependence. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of it is you could return an error that you know just looks like the error, but then they have to actually check, does it implement this interface where maybe it has another method of some sort? Right. Um, and then more recently, one of the things that makes that even more confusing is with all the wrapping of errors, when you start wrapping interfaces, you lose access to some of the embedded methods that are there, which is something we didn't really get into, but it is a, a more challenging thing to, to tackle. Oh, are we out of time? We got to well, go? We can't talk about this anymore? Oh, no. <laughs> we could always do another episode on the more advanced stuff. <laughs> As Mark tries to skirt out of the issue. I've used the error interface. I, I use errors.new by default, for sure. So just oh, see, I use fump.errorf by default. Yeah, uh, well, I tend to use that. There's an errors package. Dave Cheney, by the way, was the one that coined sentinel errors. And they're the special mm. variable error types that you return. Context yeah. package does this. It has cancelled yeah. and deadline exceeded mm -hmm. to errors that you can then see why the context has stopped. So, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, so, you know, that, that's nice. But as, as John said, it becomes part of the API, doesn't it? It becomes uh, part of the public surface of it. So you then can't change that. You live with that. That's then a design decision. Sentinel errors also offer um, a problem in that they can be changed at runtime. Oh, right, right. Oh, that's fun. Because they're just variables. They're variables, package-level variables. So you can declare, you can redeclare IO EOF at any time. <laughs> Julie Q does a good talk on finding dependable 
uh, dependencies, Mark, which I really recommend you watch okay. again. Oh, I've seen that talk. Yeah. yeah. Dave Cheney has a good write up on making constant errors, but I don't think yeah. everybody does it. Mm. But it is yeah. possible. Yeah, but it depends what you're going to do with it. That's the thing. So it's nice to think, oh, we'll build this system and all these errors will be t strongly typed and everything will be brilliant. But what's the real use? I mean, are you going to end up just sticking these errors in a log or is it going to be a notification at some point if, if it's mission critical? So what I've found myself doing is I find sometimes for myself, internally, sentinel errors can be very useful in a few different places. So if I need one of those, and, and sometimes it's not, sorry, not even a sentinel error. I, let me take that back. I just often might need to return the same error in multiple right. places, right? You know, yeah. uh, file not found, whatever the er stupid error mm -hmm. is, right? Resource not found. And so I might declare that as a non-exported variable, you know, error at the top that I can just return, but it's not for anybody else to use. It's not a sentinel mm -hmm. error. It's not exported. It's documentation. It's, yeah, it, well, it's no, it's just more so I can say return file not found error as opposed to fump.errorf mm, file not right. found. I can, you know, I can just kind of declare the error once and return it, but I'm not telling you to check for it. I'm not right. making you aware of it. It's just so that mm. I don't have to change. Shorthand. Yeah, it's just shorthand, exactly. Well, it does let you change it. It does let you change it in one place. Exactly. And, also, and so the, your methods would just return the error interface. So externally, it just looks exactly. like a normal error. Right. Yeah. And of course, right. it is a normal error because you, you, have, you either use errors new to make it or it has somehow that error method on it. Yeah. And I, I've been leaning towards the behavior-driven errors. Um, right. Again, as you know, the last few months, as I've been working more and more towards you know using interfaces a lot more, that always that makes more sense to me in terms of you know asking for information. But I don't return a ton of errors that are customized like that anyway. But we do have that <laughs> that losing the embedded history thing becomes yeah. become a problem. It, it's kind of like it's tricky because one of the cases that I'll use like uh, errors with extra methods on them for is like if I'm building a web server. I sometimes like to differentiate between an error where I can actually expose some information to the end user and an error where like the end user just needs a generic something went wrong error. That's right. it. Um, because I've seen many applications that'll just expose the error every time and I'm like, that's probably a bad idea. Um, yeah. You know, you shouldn't just be printing out strings when you don't really know what's in that string when it gets to the end user. And then the other like area I've seen it useful is if you have like users are submitting forms or they're doing something. Um, on the back end of your code, you might have the same code handling an API and handling forms. So it might want to return something that says, like, this field is wrong or it's invalid or whatever. Um, and then on the front end, you kind of render that differently. You know, if it's an HTML page, you're going to render, like, an input box with a red line around it. Um, if you're dealing with JSON, you might have something that says, like, this is the field that's wrong to try to help out the developer. So there are some errors that that's useful. But when you start wrapping them, it, it becomes a little bit trickier. And it's not impossible. Like with wrapping, it's not impossible, luckily. But that's like the one case of interface sort of embedding that it doesn't cause you to lose it. And that's because of the, what, the wrapper type? Is that what it is? That has the unwrap method? Wrap error. That, yeah. yeah. Wrap error. Yeah, that's like the the only interface where like the name of it is not what the method is. So <laughs> like it always throws you off. Mm. Um, but because of that, you can actually write like errors dot as or is, I forget which one it is, mm -hmm. but use one yeah, of those as two. As is, yeah. yeah. You, you end up like having when. to like define a bunch of variables ahead of time, <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's not pretty looking, but you can do it. So, like, it not being pretty kind of makes you only do it when it's important. So that there mm -hmm. is one upside to that, is you just don't throw it in there for everything. It's like, it has to be important enough for this code to look kind of ugly. Yeah. 
but but it is like tricky sometimes. On that too, whenever you have APIs that return errors or if you're going to show them in the UI somewhere, I personally think that should be its own explicit mechanism in your code. I don't think we should use error for that. I think error in Go code means something's gone wrong, like um, it not not that like you, this this field doesn't exist or this um, you know you don't have permission to access this resource. Those kinds of things should be, I think, done explicitly because uh, for these reasons, it's too complicated, and you expect these different things to know too much about each other but yeah that was just a sort of extension on that otherwise i completely agree i have to say uh, we are approaching that special time where we launch our new regular slot (laughs) (laughs) it's time for your unpopular opinions So let's go. We actually have, for the first time, we have a, an unpopular opinion from our Slack channel. Mm. Uh, Dylan writes that interface names should be adjectives rather than ER verbs. So he prefers closable to closer. What do you think about that? Is that unpopular? All I'll say is sometimes it is hard to twist <laughs> a name into following that convention. I mean, I'm with Dylan on that one. Some, you know, you don't have to be dogmatic about it. Sometimes, you know, it just for readability's sake, uh, it just makes more sense to go with what makes sense, right? I use a combination of both because some are a bulls and some are errs. <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> some are more describing and some are more doing. Some are more verbs and some are more adjectives you know or adverb and I think that's fine I don't think you have to be dogmatic about it yeah I think it's nice to have a general guideline to get everybody on the same page but it's not it's kind of like the uh, what it was mentioned in the slack channel as well the accept interfaces return structs it's not a rule it's a it's a guideline to sort of get you moving in the right direction but there's always exceptions to that yeah mm-hmm uh, Chokako Powwawa on Slack says that they use a prefix for their interface names. And I know that uh, in C Sharp, it was tradition to use like iClosable so that you know it's an interface. Does anyone use prefixes or suffixes or anything like that? If no. I see I in front of any interface, like that developer and I are going to have a, a little chat. <laughs> you refuse to implement it. Yeah, I'm not going to implement that ever. I'm not going to implement that interface, which takes a lot of work. That's just, it, well, you know, I mean, again, other languages do it and it's idiomatic in other languages. So I think that's fine for those languages. In Go, it's not idiomatic. And so, right. you know, if if a PR came across I would that had that for me, I would probably ask them to, to change it just because it doesn't conform with kind of idiomatic Go, not for reasons I, <laughs> I may or may not agree with. It's just that's kind of what it is. But yeah. Like all of these are interesting too because... Like the classic example of a like, so an example of a company like going completely against like style guides for a language is like Google was pretty notorious for going against the Python style guide slightly internally, and like even when the creator of Python started working at Google, <laughs> he had to suddenly not use his own style guide, which would have been frustrating, I'm sure. Yeah. But I think if you have an organization where your entire org is like using the I prefix, then by all means, you know, keep it consistent there. That's probably more valuable than than being idiomatic. But if you're working on open source, then you need to like conform to whatever the you know, the norm is there. 
I say find out during the interview. I mean, because I would seriously have a problem with that. <laughs> so, Johnny, the interview's over. Do you have any questions for us? Do you use any prefixes when naming your interfaces? Well, He's yes, like, I we need do. To see I'm some out. code. I need some like legit production code with interfaces in it. I need either a ten percent bump or I'm out. Uh, I like there's still a price though. <laughs> there's, there's always I mean, a I am I am willing to overlook this, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> but you got to make it worth my while. <laughs> they like have an intern just write plugins for your everything you use that just exactly. removes it. It just hides it, puts them back in, and commit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just rewrites to save, right? Yep. Your own version of GoFump just puts I in front of every interface. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. oh, go troll. That could be a tool. <laughs> we could make that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Unpopular opinions, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Bates? Have you got an unpopular opinion, mate? Have you got I, a yeah. popular one? Uh, no, I don't have any popular ones. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows that. <laughs> so it's, it's, it was difficult choosing an unpopular. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the bit that you struggled with, wasn't it? That yeah. was the bit I struggled with. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I, I'm going to come up with, uh, I don't like the way that uh, the main package and the main function is designed. I see. Ex- you, explain. Yeah, explain. Explain. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it promotes global scope, for example. Uh, OS.args comes to mind, right? Uh, we were talk, just talking about you can redefine io.eof, right? Uh, for, mm-hmm. you know, and the problem with you know, CLIs is if you're not immediately taking that OS.args and handing it off to something else, it's hard to write tests around. Everything's kind of globally scoped. Present working directory, well, it's technically is global. You know, it again, it makes it hard to test if you're talking about those things, right? So I feel like those, that and a context, we have no context when we're in there, right? And admittedly, th- that was all after <laughs> context came at later. But, you know, if the main package was exportable, if we could call it, if we if the main function was exportable and say took a context, a work current working directory, the arguments and returned even a basic error, maybe you know, still let us do os.exit, whatever, but if we return an error, just you, you know, do a default exit of some kind. And I think that would that allows for better tested CLIs, nicer looking code that Go can give us that information at runtime. That's not difficult information to give us. And I think it promotes a, a better kind of generally a better way of writing our CLIs. Right now, I feel a lot of CLIs get written in the main function by accident just because people are hacking away trying to get something right. And then they've got a big, long main.go file that's not very well tested or broken out. And p- other people can't make use of that CLI without yeah. compiling and shelling out. I completely agree with that, actually. And what, I, what I, I solve that problem, though, by I have a little run function, and that takes in the args, and it takes in an IO reader and a writer, if there's standard in, standard right. out, and returns an error. And then I just have a standard little main. I do create a context in that main, which is cancelled when command C is hit the first right. time. That cancels yeah. the context. Then the second command C exits the program. So, cause, you know, you don't want to be annoying people if, you, if it's hanging for too long or something. Right. And then, yeah, and then you can write test code and just call run and pass in a different slice of string for your arguments. You could pass in different uh, writer. You could use a buffer so you can read then what was written by your tool. My biggest problem with that, which, you know, again, is definitely just having another, giving it to another function is a good thing. My biggest problem there is I still can't, as a third party, I still can't use your code 
programmatically from Go. Yeah, they're different, aren't they? Packages and and programs yeah. are fundamentally um, different. So the way I, I I'm trying to solve it of in my code now is my main is very very simple. It you know context background, get the slice of args, get the working directory, and then hand all of that off to an exported main function that takes those things in a package that I can then work with. And I basically don't have to look at the main.go file ever again. Hmm. Right? Now I'm just kind of off in Goland, and then you can come along and import it, and you can pass it a context, a working directory, and some args, and start using my CLI in your program. And it's really nice and clean and kind of top level. And I don't know, I've, I've been finding it as a pattern. It's been working really, really well for me recently. Do you shell out or do you call them directly? What do you mean? Do you create a command exec and run an actual pro- sub-process? Is that how you run things? Or do you just call? I think call he just has a method. Directly. Like he just calls a method or a function on another package. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or like time. he might name the other package mark and it might have a main exported function and he calls mark.main inside of his actual main that doesn't do much. I bet he does have a program called that. I know, no, right? uh, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I've been leaning towards a CLI package. And then like having a type, not even a top level function, but a, a top level type, you know, a type there, you know, whatever it is. And that has the main function on it. Again, it just no scope, right? I don't want top level. I don't want any global scope here. Mm-hmm. Um, a zero value struct should be able to handle that CLI. And like I said, it's a pattern I found has been working really well for me because then I can kind of manipulate whatever I need to just with those three kind of pieces of function, those three pieces. It is nice, though, that Go makes it easy enough to do that. Like, you found a, hmm. a pattern that works right. for you and you can sort of build around that. And it's so, like, it, I get what you're saying, but I also feel like because it's so easy to sort of just build around it that it's kind of a, not that much of a limitation. No, it's not necessarily a limitation. It's just an unpopular opinion, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying it would, you know, like if they were to rethink it for V2, those would be my suggestions for. for well, on those bombshells of. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 where's Johnny's? Oh. Isn't Johnny supposed to come up with one today? Nah, man, that's next week. Oh, that's I, I not cool. Ta- I, need ta- I need time to think about this. Oh, yeah, nice. fine. <laughs> He's too nice. That's right. He's too nice. I, re- I remember now. Yeah, that's yeah, right. He yeah, broke yeah, into yeah. a cold sweat when we said we might have to upset somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just makes him a nice guy, doesn't it? <laughs> like Mark's how these like two offset each him. other. Mark's, Mark's nowhere near too nice. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. And Mark <laughs> trolls him for being nice. That's how. <laughs> that's where we've got to. That's how evil uh, I am. Well, welcome to the internet. And I'll say, uh, I'll say our goodbyes. We've reached the end of the show. Thank you very much, Mark, Johnny, and John. Uh, hopefully, we, everyone's learned a little bit about interfaces and abstractions and grappled with them as you uh, as you go into your future endeavors. We wish you all the best. We'll see you next time. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Dylan and the Gopher Slack for sharing that unpopular opinion. We love hearing from all the gophers out there. Hit us up on Twitter. We are at GoTimeFM. Or comment directly on ChangeLog.com. Just click the Discuss on ChangeLog News link in your show notes. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer with panelists Johnny Borsico, John Calhoun, and Mark Bates. It was produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the oh-so-mysterious BMC. We're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Support them. They support us. We've got Fastly on Bandwidth, Linode on Hosting, and Rollbar on Bugs. The ChangeLog Master Feed is your one-stop 
shop for all of our podcasts. You can find it by searching Changelog Master in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, all for the price of a free BitBar. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Recording. I see bars Rolling. and kilobytes. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's great. I want that as my ringtone. <laughs> kilobytes. <laughs> Incoming kilobytes. <laughs> All right, are we cool with me going live? Yep. Yeah, man. Mm. Do it. All right, we're live. Okay. Two minutes early. Well, we still have to wait like two minutes, yeah, to let people okay. in. Okay. Two minutes. Let's all sit in uncomfortable silence then. Well, I don't think it has to be silent. Can still be uncomfortable and we'd be talking. <laughs> no well, to be. Otherwise, we're, if we do that now, then what are we going to do for the next 60 minutes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not talk and make things uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Uh. Wait, y'all weren't kidding about that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, then we just genuinely ran out of things to say. That's it, uh, folks. We're done with the episode. <laughs> Come back next is, week. Is that it? That was amazing. Uh, that hour flew by. Thank you for having me. It's the best hour I've ever spent with you, Mark. And, <laughs> in silence, huh? Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. We're not, this isn't the show yet. I hope not. No. Mm.